Yep. One, 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 one A all around. That's it. Kobe haircut. Okay. Let's let's pray. Lord, I thank you for for allowing us to come here by your grace. I pray for your mercy. I pray, Father, that that your saints, you will give them eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, Father. And may I speak boldly the truth, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, it's always an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you guys. Um, If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, there are just two passages, Luke 18, you want to keep your hand on Luke 18, and also Psalms 32. So Luke 18 and Psalms 32, just keep your hands on there if you want to follow along, if you don't like following along. I don't have notes. Uh, I don't have a laptop. So Arturo told me, uh, he was asking me about the sermon notes, and I was like, man, dude, I don't type. And he's like, man, it's 2014. Who doesn't? Who doesn't type? So I'm from the old school. I, uh, I write everything. But many of you know that last Friday marked the, the 500th, almost 500th, 497th anniversary to be exact of perhaps the, the greatest move of God's spirit since the days of the apostles. On October 31st, 1517, a German Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses onto the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther condemned the excesses of corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, primarily the papal practice of asking for payments in exchange for forgiveness and sins. And we know this to be called indulgences. And what Luther was was trying to get across was to was for the Roman Catholic Church and for Christians in general to repent. And I think it's only fitting that last Friday was Reformation Day and this Wednesday we are speaking on the same thing that Luther pinned in his first theses. Luther said this in his first theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The turning from the nasty, disgusting, evil sin to the one who saves sinners, Jesus Christ. And I've met a lot of people when I have went out to the marketplace and various places and I've asked them on the street. Are you a Christian? And sometimes I would get the common answer. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then when I would qualify that, I would say, well, what makes you a Christian? And they would reply, well, I was born a Christian or the probably the most famous answer in the world is I've been a Christian my whole life. And if you know anything about the total depravity of man. And if you read the first chapter of Romans, you know that nobody's been a Christian their whole life. In fact, probably the first half of their life, well, actually the first half of their life, they've been rebellious. They've been a hater of God. They've been a child of Satan. And honestly, people that say those things, I really don't think that they're saved. 
because they have no concept of who God is, no concept of what the Bible says, who they are, what Christ has done. And I've known people who have grown up in church and who have grown up in this church. And based off of that alone, some of them have the audacity to say that they are saved. They are saved based off of, well, I was the preacher's kid or I was the worship team's daughter or I was the usher's niece. So by that I am saved. And I think, you know, by now that going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Being raised in church doesn't make you a Christian. And there are many people who do the Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday evening uh, church routine who don't read their Bible, who don't share their faith, who don't proclaim the good news of the gospel, who are lazy. And because they have grown up in church or they went to a certain vacation Bible school or when they were 10 years old, they watched an old Carmen video where the devil was was uh, he looked like a monster. So they got baptized and they said the sinner's prayer. So by that profession of faith, when they were a kid, They think that they are saved. They think that those things with no fruit coming out of those things makes them a Christian. And what I see in in a large majority of Christianity is people who are quick to call themselves Christians with no change in their life, no transformation, no, no hatred for sin and no repentance. And listen, brothers and sisters, God will not let us. Get away with that. If you read the Bible, the Bible will not let us get away with that. The fruit of someone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect work alone is repentance. So, like Pastor said, tonight the assignment is to speak on repentance. And primarily what I'm going to do is paint a picture of what true repentance looks like and what false repentance looks like. And in between those those primaries, secondary, I hope that or I want to to give you encouragement and I want to give you hope on how to fight the daily war that we engage in with our flesh and with our sin. And if you can, can you put this air down a little bit? I feel like the in the movie, The Sixth Sense, cold. Let me give you a formal definition of repentance. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncement of it, a commitment to forsake it so you can walk in obedience to Christ. It's a change of mind. It's a turning away. It's a remorse for sinning against a holy God. John Calvin, who I'm going to be referring to a lot in this study, is he said in his Institutes on repentance. Repentance is a real conversion of our life unto God, proceeding from sincere and serious fear of God and consisting in the mortification of our flesh and the old man and the quickening of our spirit. A real conversion of our life unto God, meaning the giving up of our lives, the giving up of our or what were our goals and what were our dreams and what were our aspirations for the sole purpose of what God has created you for, which is to glorify him and how you glorify him within those dreams is the will of God, whatever he wants you to do. But it is to glorify him, to make much of him, to make his name known. 
and to enjoy him forever. This life starts with the fear of God. Psalms 111 says, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this life consists of the daily killing of our flesh and the sowing to the spirit. It's to refuse to associate with the person that you used to be. It's to put to death the old man. This was the message of John the Baptist, Matthew 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see the same message in Matthew 4, with the beginning of Christ's ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both emphasizing one word, repent. Both urging sinners to radically change, to radically turn from sin, which leads to the restoration of relationship that we once had with God. That is what you have done. By God's grace, you have turned from your old ways. You have turned from the old man or woman. And you are now a new creation in Christ. But you must understand that this cannot happen alone. Even repentance itself. That repentance is a gift from God. It's a glorious gift from God that he gives to the undeserving Sinner. Second Timothy two twenty five says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And on a side note, those of you have who have uh, went through the storm a little bit when we were talking about the doctrines of grace and those of you have who have embraced reformed theology and the five points of Calvinism and the doctrines of grace and and how God saves man. Haven't you noticed how every aspect of your coming to Christ has been God's own doing? And yes, even though it was your coming to Christ, it was your free choice. God did not force you to come to him. You understand at the bottom of it all, God was there. He Foreknew you. He elected you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He drew you. He changed your heart. He changed your will. He granted you the gift of repentance. And if you are in Christ right now, He will sustain you and He will keep you for all eternity. That's exactly what we tell sinners. Not that we get there later, but what we tell sinners, we preach repentance and we urge them to repent. And, and yes, I used to think like Spurgeon, well, we go out, we preach the gospel and we go home and go to sleep. But in that, when we preach the gospel, we are giving our heart out because we understand if you understand the total depravity of man and, and if you understand the, the levels and the depths of hell, then you have to to preach with urgency for these for these sinners, these children of Satan to repent of their sin. For them to acknowledge how sinful they are, to acknowledge how they are unable to save themselves. And by that by that big power, that that grace of God, all the power that is in him. Get this, he will transfer 
their allegiance from Satan to him. And that's exactly what he did to you. He transferred your will, your will to the flesh. Now you're able to 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 respond to him and you are able to to glorify him in, in a maximum way. Repentance is an amazing gift from God, not just a a a ordinary. Oh, I'm sorry. Not that type of repentance. We'll get there, but we must understand that not all repentance is the same. Second Corinthians 7:10 says, "For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death." Let me read that one more time. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So here we have two sorrows. You have a sorrow that leads to salvation and you have a sorrow that leads to death. Okay. So we're first going to start with what does false repentance look like? John Calvin again said in his institutes, he called this type of repentance a legal repentance is how he described it. That by which the sinner Stung with a sense of his sin and overwhelmed with fear of the divine anger remains in a state of perturbation. Unable to escape from it, the Bible gives Cain, Saul, and Judas as examples of legal repentance. They perceived the dreadfulness of their sins and dreaded the divine anger. But thinking God as only a judge and avenger were overwhelmed by the thought. You see, they were sorrowful, but and, and they thought of God, but they only thought of God as the judge. And they only thought about the punishment. You see, this type of repentance fears the thought of hell. And it is sorrowful about going to hell instead of the one who will cast them into hell. They focus on hell instead of disobeying God. They fear the thought and are sorrowful of someone catching them in their sin. Maybe my wife will find out. Or maybe my pastor will find out. Or maybe my neighbor or my best friend will find out. Maybe, maybe they'll, they'll notice something different in me. And they'll catch me in my sin. Instead of worrying about the God who is watching them while they participate in their sin. Or while they are acting in their sin. John MacArthur said it is as if you're in the movie theater. And God's in the seats. And you're on the big screen and he's just watching you. <clears throat> you see, they are not sorry or see, they are sorry for getting caught. And even though they are sorrowful, they only feel sorrow in an intellectual way. Their conscience tells them that it was a bad idea that you did that or what you just did was was it could be harmful for your body and it could be harmful if your friends knew about it. But there is no moving of the spirit. There is no acknowledgement that they have sinned and rebelled against the holy God. They have fallen short of the mark. It's not spiritual at all. There's nothing spiritual about that. It's simply, man, I messed up. Man, I can't believe I did it again. 
man, I've really blown it this time. And yes, worldly sorrow does produce some some type of tears, but those tears dry up far too quickly. And those tears don't transform lives. And after the failure, they might say, "Okay, well, well, let me just go do something fun or let me just go do something to get my mind off of what I did. Or let me go watch TV or, or maybe let me go do my favorite hobby. Maybe that will get my mind off of feeling sorrowful. Maybe that will get my mind off of off of the sin I just committed. So they use hobbies. They use fun. They use everything the world can throw at them as as desirable to dry up their tears. Instead of taking a moment, instead of taking all day long, taking a week if they have to. And living in the shame and living in the guilt of sin. There's something to be said about someone who lives in that as opposed to someone who does the sin, repents, and goes along their way. Instead of drying your tears with fun, with, with things that can get your mind off of your sinful action, your sinful ways, dry your tears with scriptures like Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgression was me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleansed me from my sin. And that was only the first three verses. I advise you to read Psalm 51. Worldly sorrow and repentance often leads to some form of legalism. Which means after the sin and after the failure, they try to set up boundaries and they, they try to set up certain obstacles that they have to go through to try to protect them from, from that sin. Protect them from that same sin that they keep committing. Instead of looking, instead of seeing and trusting the one who is far more glorious, who is far more pleasurable, who is far more desirable. The one who conquered sin, Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that setting up these things are bad. I'm not saying putting a block on your phone is bad or putting a block on your computer or, or not going to this place or this place. But if you think that saying, no, nah, I can't do this and I can't do this and, and no, 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 I, I, shame on me, I can't do this, I can't go there. If you think that will stop you from sinning, if you think that that will stop your flesh from rising up, then you have been very mistaken guys you have to see something that is more powerful that is far more beautiful that is far more thrilling and sweet and desirable than any sin your flesh will throw at you i'm talking about christ i'm talking about seeing christ as 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 delightful and as edwards would say to see him as sweet it has to captivate you. Your mind has to be fixed on that. And you have to see it. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy in the world is not sin. The greatest joy in the world is not feeding your flesh. 
C.S. Lewis said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. Let me break that down. We are, we are half-hearted creatures. We think that the greatest desire is having a lot of sex and is, is getting drunk multiple times in a day and, and getting high and, and, and going after the money. Some of you, might, it might be lying or, or, or it might be fighting or whatever. You think that that is the most thrilling, uh, exciting thing that you can ever partake in. And C.S. Lewis says that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but man, those are weak. Those are some weak desires. If you think that that is the most desirable thing in the world, that that is the most fun you can have. And he says, when infinite joy is offered to us. You think that the quick surge of whatever your sin is, pornography, is enough when there is an everlasting, an infinite, a glorious, a splendid joy that just awaits. And it's standing right there. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on, get this, making mud pies in the slum. Because he cannot imagine what is, what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. You have a little kid who is so blind and who is so stuck in his ways, who is off in the dirt making mud pies in the slum because he can't even imagine. He's never even thought that there can be something that is more thrilling, that is more exciting than this. And C.S. Lewis says that there is a holiday. Some of you, you know, you know what a holiday is when you took off work, a holiday at the sea, awaiting. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Don't be pleased with... Guys, if you want to kill sin, don't be pleased with, with delighting and, and enjoying eating cup of noodles and hamburger helper every day. When there is a flaming young awaiting, don't be satisfied with that. And then when that comes, when, when, those, when your flesh arises, weigh them out. What is, what is more delightful? What will feed me better? And yes, it does look pretty good. But man, compared to the infinite value of Jesus Christ, it's nothing. It doesn't even compare. I love John Piper when he even says that even when you sin, it is as if you are putting the spear on Christ's side when he's on the cross. You are saying, you say, you said in the beginning, the king of the Jews. But then on Friday, you say, nail him when you commit your sins. When you begin to see Christ as far more pleasurable and desirable and beautiful than I promise you guys Sin becomes smaller and smaller. I'm not saying that sin will, will not be in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is you can overcome that sin. 
by daily readings. Worship. There is, guys, to me, worship is the most, one of the most thrilling things a Christian can do. Singing praises to a holy God. Meditation. Read the Psalms and meditate on it. Sit quietly somewhere. And then when it's all said and done, we can say like St. Augustine, who was in bondage for almost 30 years. All he did was have sex all day, every day. He said this. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys with which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and and you took their place. Oh, my Lord, my God, my light, my wealth and my salvation. It's a glorious thing when you see Christ for who he is. Not as the meek Messiah, not as the humble carpenter, but as the king sitting on the throne. So what does true repentance look like in the life of a believer? And again, I refer to John Calvin his institutes. He calls this type of true repentance, evangelical repentance. He said, evangelical repentance or that by which the sinner, though grievously downcast in himself, but yet looks up and sees Christ as the cure of his wound. The solace of his of his terror, the haven of the rest from his misery. And I will expand what true repentance looks like with a little help from the famous Puritan Thomas Watson, who wrote a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And it's on it's on online. So if you want to go check it out, then you can. But in his book, he says repentance is spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin and a turning from sin. And we're going to quickly walk through these. The first ingredient for godly repentance is the sight of sin. You must see what you have done. You must see sin as the evil, unpleasant, unappealing, undesirable, disgusting thing that it is. You have to see it. And what sin does, as many of you know, it promises joy and it promises happiness. And yes, it does give you that, but only for a split second. It's only temporary. You must see you must see sin not only as rebellion, but you must see sin as suicide. And if and if God has granted you the sight of, of, of you being able to see your sin, can you even picture that you used to love sin? Sin was nothing for to you to do. But but now you, you see sin for what it is. And that's a glorious gift from God. It is seeing sin not only externally but internally and you and you and you now understand the separation that happens when you sin 
Number two is the sorrow for sin. This is an emotional grieving of sin. This type of sorrow is not the sorrow that says, man, I messed up. Man, I I sure did blow it. But it is the breaking of the heart. It is a deep agony for sinning against holy God. This sorrow, this this is not a passive sorrow. It doesn't just say, I'm sorry, and then moves on with their day. But it cuts deep. It breaks the heart. It is a sorrow for the offense rather than the punishment. Some examples of this repentance. Jeremiah 31, 19. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Jeremiah beating his own thigh because of his sin. Ezra 9, 3. As soon as I heard of this, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled my hair from my head and beard and I sat appalled. The brokenness of Ezra displayed before the people as he was so disheartened over the sin that he saw. Like I, you, you're already there, Luke 18 10 verses 10 to 14. We know this famous passage. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I possess. But this is how you should respond. And a tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But get this. He beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me. I can't even look at your holiness. I am so dissatisfied with, for, for who I am. I am so ugly. I am so dirty. I can't even look at you. Please be merciful to me. Please grant me forgiveness. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. These are some examples of the remorse and my prayer for you this 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 night is that if it takes you all night weeping over your sin, if it takes all you all night weeping like a baby and you can't do anything for you to understand the degree and the level of your sin, then so be it. <clears throat> Number three is the confession of sin. It's to come to God as simply a beggar. Is to plead to God for mercy and grace and forgiveness. Mind you, he doesn't have to give you any of those things. It is to tell God in the most sincere way of how much of a failure you are. How remorseful you are. St. Augustine said this. 
that before his conversion, he confessed sin and begged, begged for power against it. But hear this. But his heart whispered within him, not yet, Lord. He really didn't want to leave his sin behind. But the person who practices true repentance, the believer, the heart keeps pace with the tongue. And it confesses the same sin that the heart abhors. That your confession is not far off from your heart. That your mind is not far off from, from the displeasure that you have in your heart. The displeasement that you have. It's all connected and it all flows out. Let our confession be like David's in, in Psalms 32. Blessed is, the, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And in those spirit, he does not deceit. But get this. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. When I did not confess my sin, my bones started to hurt. Through my groaning, through my groaning all day long and for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you have forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way to go, the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which you have no understanding, which must have harassed with a bit and brittle, else they might come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord's mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice and righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Number four is the shame and the hatred for sin. You must have some sort of shame. You must have. You must have some sort of guiltiness. It has to, it has to just cloak you. It has to come on you. And guys, guilt is a glorious thing. Guilt is a gift from God. Wear it. Own it. Because what guilt does and what shame does that it stores in your memory bank the exact same feeling that you had after the failure. You remember how you felt after you committed the sin. This type of sorrow is not passive. It doesn't quickly want to get over the failure, but what it does is it lives in the failure. And it waits for the Lord to to comfort him in the failure. Again, Ezra 9, 6. And I said, oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you. 
my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Man, my God, has your guilt ever grown to the heavens? This also leads to hatred for sin. Ezekiel 36, 31 says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. A true believer is a sin loather. A true believer is a hater of sin. A true believer hates the sin found in him and is sickened by it. It sickens his soul. Do you hate your sin like that? Do you hate the fact that you sin? Do you hate the fact that you have desires that are not pleasing to God? The last one is a turning from sin. And this last one is it's not simply a hope or wishing that you will never sin again, because quite honestly, you probably will. But what it is, is a declaration that you will trust in Christ and in Christ alone to be all that you ever wanted, all that you ever needed. All the pleasure that you can ever indulge in. And when you live a life of godly repentance and after the tears and after the failure and after the guilt, after the confession, after the shame and the guiltiness. I pray that Psalms 126.5 is a warm blanket to your soul. It says those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Some scriptures I want to leave you with. First, John one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah one eighteen. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, thou shalt be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And last scripture, second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I pray, Father, that that somebody got something out of this word. Lord, maybe I was just preaching to myself. And I pray, Father, that that when we go home, that, Lord, we will get on our knees and And we will repent of the sins that we have committed today. And this will not be just a one-time thing, but it will be a daily thing. We will repent in the car. We will repent in the bathroom. We will repent when we are all alone among people. We will repent, Father, because we do not want to disobey you. For you are holy and you are righteous and you are just. I thank you for this time, Lord. I pray for your people as they go. Give them grace. Give them traveling mercy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, Any questions?